Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence with psychiatrist Bernard David Beitman, MD. Dr. Beitman is the founder of the Coincidence Project. The project encourages people like you to tell each other coincidence stories. To learn more about Dr. Beitman's work, put Connecting with Coincidence in your web browser. You'll find his book, his Psychology Today blog, and the interviews from this podcast. And now your host, Bernard Beitman, MD. Got it. Uh, welcome to CC with BB 2.0. Yes, connecting with coincidence. And I am your host, Dr. Bertie Beitman, MD. If you wish to support us here at Connecting with Coincidence, please like and subscribe. Increasing subscription numbers increases our reach. And those of you watching us on YouTube, write us one of your coincidence stories in the comments section and we will reply. When people are talking with each other on Zoom, Skype and FaceTime, an unexpected pattern is beginning to emerge. High emotion between the people talking is correlated in time with a distortion in the electronics. The image freezes, words get lost, the signal gets squiggly and hard to understand. In a meeting with people attending the Zoom Coincidence Cafe, I somewhat innocently and somewhat provocatively asked a participant if she had been a groupie for the lead singer of a band we both liked. She instantly shut down the discussion. I'm not talking about that, she said. On the screen, up came a, a signal, a, a message that your signal is weak. No one else had lost the signal strength. I checked on it, uh, including the person that I was addressing this to. My signal returned. Today, my guest and I will suggest to you that these shaky internet moments are more common than is currently recognized. Joe Camry is the president and CEO of Pacific Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara, a very nice place in California. He is past president of the International Association for Analytical Psychology, has served as the U.S. editor of the Journal of Analytical Psychology, and is, is former president of the C.G. Jung Institute of Boston. Joe is a Jungian analyst now living in Santa Barbara. He's numer his numerous publications include Synchronicity, Nature, and Psyche in an Interconnected World, well worth reading, and several edited volumes on Jungian psychology. He's published numerous papers and lectures uh, internationally. Welcome to the show, uh, Joe. Bernie, it's wonderful to be back. Really nice. <laughs> such an important mission you're involved with here. Oh, thank you. And you, you know, you've had a lot to do with helping this happen just by what you do um, and your support of the idea and your openness to making coincidences something that gets out there in the national mind. And I'm doing it outside of Jungian, you're doing within Jungian, but that's where you, you also get out. And I know that, and that's what we're doing right now. So, hey, Joe, what do you think about this stuff I was saying there about the, you know, stuff happening on Zoom and Skype and stuff? What about that, Joe? Yeah, well, in, in my experience as an analyst, I, I almost hate to see the platforms get more stable. You know, when I first began doing a lot of internet work, it was Skype, and Skype was a little bit tentative at the time. Um, 
especially over uh, long distances internationally. And the number of, of uh, anecdotal coincidences of breakdown of signal at affectively charged moments was just, I have hundreds of examples. And I've talked to clinicians all around the world about this. And there's a large, large database of this kind of information. So it's absolutely there. As we've gone to Zoom, pre-pandemic, it was stabilizing and you wouldn't get quite as much disruption. It was a little more subtle. Now with the pandemic, things have shifted a little bit because so much of our life has, has moved online that there are certain times a day that the signals are a little bit um, less uh, less stable because of the volume of traffic. And, and it's interesting to note the sessions that happen at those times uh, do still have that kind of vulnerability to uh, what I would say an affective field that interacts with in some way that I cannot completely describe the, the uh, electronic field. But well, it's an old I idea. You know? that, that that's what we're talking about here, Joe, and we're going to go for some examples of it. Um, and I have some, of course, too, but I want to hear from you. But the I'm, basic idea we're talking about today is that emotion between, let's say, usually two people talking on Zoom, but it can be more, but between two people, somehow disrupts the signal even on Zoom, which has become more stable and more likely at times when Zoom is, uh, when a lot of people are on Zoom doing stuff. Um, so try to try to tell us about some examples and what do you think is, might be going on with these fields? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge deep question in terms of the history of this, but let me start with an example or two. And then if you want to talk a little more history, we can oh, do History's that. good, history's good, okay. Um, I mean, just one example, I was, I was doing supervision with someone, um, was presenting a case, and it was a, um, a dream of a patient in which the image of um, a being deep in a cave with a kind of uh, somewhat translucent uh, uh, crystal wall between the therapist and the patient who was more deeply into the cave. And there was real difficulty communicating. They had to use hand signals in the dream. And as we began to explore that dream, I've never had this happen before since both of our systems went down. We had to both reboot our computers. This was someone at a distance. When we finally got the computers, we could not get the, either one of us could not get the audio to work. We ended up having to use cell phones to communicate. So we had a visual signal and we're speaking to one another on cell phones simultaneously to get the audio signal. In other words, we reenacted the fundamental content of that dream in the session. And that was not any by any means deliberate on either person's part. It was as if there was an archetypal aspect of the field that was being enacted uh, for us. We were, we were enacted, we were being pulled into the drama. And it fundamentally changed how we understood the nature of that experience. We, it went from being more the symbolic idea of what the communication gap might be to really wrestling with the immediate experience of that gap. And so I, that, that's one that comes to mind fairly readily that, that, that's like that. But I think there are a lot of other- Let's, 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 pause, let's pause for a minute now, Joe. I am noticing when I'm listening to you that your words are not quite matching what your audio is not matching uh, your lips. Uh, and there's, there's a slight disjunction between the two. Exactly. And I've noticed this before and it, it, it clears up sometimes 
when I'm talking with people. Have you noticed anything like that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I've had that. Uh, and sometimes it'll freeze for a moment and then it'll look like they say something very fast. And sometimes I get all the content. Sometimes I get a part of the content. Well, it's part of the content, but the, the correlation between your lips, that's what you mean too. Okay. Okay. I see what you mean. Okay. So I'm noticing that now too. And I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, you might be seeing this out there, but that's what we got. Yeah, um, and okay. who know, we don't know why, because there's multiple factors potentially involved. And one of them could be, again, a lot of volume on Zoom right now could having it be having an influence on this. Yeah. But we have to say maybe us. Now let's go back to your your cave dream. I mean, for some reason, I was with Plato on that one, too. We were in a cave, and not unlike Plato's, I suppose, but there was you and then there was the, 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 the patient. And there was an opaque screen as opaque something between the two of you. So that was the dream. So there was some kind of distortion in your communication communication ability that suggested by the dream. And there you had during your session, that same similar thing happened, a parallel thing happened. Is that a good summary of it? Um, one um, emendation, it wasn't actually my patient. I was supervising a case. This oh, was a okay. dream reported in supervision. Ah. And there was a parallel process between what the clinician was experiencing in the work with the patient and what happened between the clinician and myself. We reenacted the, his patient's dream in the context of our supervision. Uh, the term parallel process took me a while to understand. <laughs> why, why don't you let, 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 our, let our audience know something about what that means in psychotherapy supervision? Yeah, that's a, this is a term uh, that was uh, actually really coined, I think, in around the 1980s, when supervisors began to realize that at times um, a dilemma that a therapist was experiencing with a client would unconsciously be being replicated in the supervision. And that it often was uh, extremely valuable to make that conscious and work through and talk that uh, conflict over. And in fact, I've actually seen cases where you raise that up and it actually improves the, um, the uh, therapy itself. Just by just by having made it conscious. In other words, I'll, I'll give an example. I had a a, a client uh, supervisor, a supervisee was seeing me um, on a case that they had done some supervision before, and it, it had not been terribly successful. And so we altered the approach, um, and the person had not said anything to the client. But the client, after about a month, said, "Are you in a new supervision?" And the therapist said, well, what do you what do you mean? She said, the way you're listening and the way you're responding has changed. Something fundamental is shifting. So these things are are being communicated, not just at a conscious level, but unconsciously. And people who can tune into that often get some kind of registration of that process. I, I, I call that a coincidence. Yeah. I yes. mean, that's, that's part of the reason I was interested in it. We have some kind of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's coincidence as well. <laughs> yeah, you do too. I mean, we can kind of kind of go to an explanation for it. So if you have an explanation, it's not a coincidence is the one way of thinking about them. But I don't think we have a good explanation for that yet. And it has something to do with fields um, that 
we're we're talking about that you i mean i love the field ideas and so do you so we're going to be talking about fields a lot a lot in this what i want what i'd like to be able to suggest to you is is that maybe um that this parallel processing also goes on uh outside of the therapist super the therapist being supervised the therapist seeing uh, a patient uh, in, in in regular life what do you think about that yeah i think that that what we do in therapy because if we're taking a depth psychological approach we we have a kind of orientation to look for unconscious phenomena but that doesn't mean that's the only place it shows up. I think you're absolutely correct. It is a fundamental part of everyday life. And really that goes back to Freud when he started to talk about jokes and you know the unconscious really as an everyday phenomena that we normally um, don't tune into. But once you get attuned to it, a tremendous amount of this material is there. And I would say, you know, one of the areas that I've become interested in, and I think it fits the parallel process, is the notion of kairos. That is, why at this moment does something happen? So I may be sitting with someone and suddenly have a fantasy of something. Just, you know, my mind wanders a little bit in a daydream. I've learned that many of those are um, a signal from the field. They're actually something that's beginning to emerge in the interaction with somebody. And by attending to those kinds of things, something meaningful that might not otherwise be um, noticed or listened to or engaged can now be uh, come into being in a, a fuller, richer way. So what, what we want to be able to say here and applying this to daily life, which is mostly what I like to be able to do is take some ideas from psychotherapy and uh, say sure. that they're generalizable. So if, if someone is talking with somebody and uh, some kind of image comes up uh, in their minds, if they let it uh, come up and they can see it, then that may be saying something about what's going on between that person, uh, but between the two of them. That's what you're trying to be able to say, I think. No, I, I think it's a, a question of learning to um, query that not every image that comes up is necessarily about the interactive field. But if you start to open the mind to that, to let it be there, and then you say, you know, gee, I just have... I had a thought or I had a, had an image, uh, oftentimes there's something shared about that. And it creates actually a, a, an empathic link. You can feel a kind of closeness. I think empathy is part of what we're talking about here. Perhaps even, this has gone on a little bit of a neuroscience limb, but the, the roots of empathy, the kind of neurological um, the sort of uh, substrates in us, like mirror neurons, allow us to pick up uh, fluctuations in the field and register them to consciousness in image form. So using an empathic understanding, I think we can tune in more deeply to fields. And this means that empathy probably has something objective about it. It's not just a subjective experience. I agree. And we're going to, we'll get to fields, but we, we were, we were in a cave the last time uh, we were talking and we got to, we, we got it, we got out of the, we got into the field here uh, outside the cave. And there's something here uh, about trying to be able to suggest that the parallel between the dream in the cave between the patient and the therapist paralleled what happened between you and the therapist that you were supervising yes. that's dramatic and that's somewhat well i i 
I'm trying to struggle with this is, I suppose it's emotional, um, but the dream doesn't have the kind of emotion that I was thinking about that seemed that I've experienced that seems to disrupt the electronic communication. So there's something yet a little different about the cave dream that you're telling me about than what I thought we were talking about. Well, the way I think the link for me is the um, the frustration that was in the dream. The, the that what you have is a a, a block to communication, you, and. This is what I've seen in a variety of trauma cases. I can talk about this more if, if you'd like. That when channels of ordinary communication are suppressed or blocked, uh, there's an emotional buildup. And sometimes if there isn't a way to put that through in language, you'll get a synchronistic kind of experience that'll occur. And I think that happens electronically. I think it's a medium that's very, very um, open or prone to that kind of disruption. Okay. Sure. Okay. Excuse me for a minute here, Joe. I kind of got I kind of got lost someplace. Um I think I know what you're talking about, but what I'd like to do is summarize it. I mean, I like translating you for for me <laughs> as well as for other people. And for myself too. It's and, a, well, okay. You're a good mirror. Oh, thanks. Thanks. That that's here I'm traumatized. Um, and I have trouble putting words on the traumatic experience. And somehow that, let me say, frustration, uh, that like that um, goes like that. That is what you're suggesting pops out there. Yeah. And, and in an elliptical way, instead of a direct communication, instead of a verbal communication like this, it gets into the field and causes a discharge in the field that we register as something synchronistic because it doesn't have a causal link in the way we describe causality. And now, um, Joe, we're going to have to do something that we're not going to do very long here is uh, the field. I mean, I played a lot of baseball. <laughs> I know what a field is. <laughs> but what's what's the, I know my father had cattle. <laughs> they went out to the field. What if what's the field you're talking about? Yeah. OK, let, let me give just a, a very brief history of the notion of the field in physics, because that's what I'm borrowing from. I'm, I'm actually following William James, the great American psychologist. During the 19th century, one of the one of the really open questions was what was the relationship between electricity and magnetism? People knew how we were beginning to build things that would uh, the precursors to what we would call a battery. Uh, and they knew about lodestones, that is, things that uh, certain kinds of uh, stones that would orient, if, if floated freely, that would orient towards the Earth's magnetic field, whatever that might mean. And there was a, a profound sense of these things were related, but nobody knew how. So the classic experiment that began to break it open was in the 18, around 1820. There was a, a Danish uh, physicist, Hans Christian Orsted. And he, this is a coincidence story. It's filled with serendipity. He's showing his students, he's, he's giving a class lecture on physics and showing them how to create a voltaic pile, a battery. The way you, you have the two different chemical substances and you run a, a, a copper wire and you get a flow of electrons or what we would call electricity uh, through the wire. 
And the serendipitous part was somebody accidentally left a compass sitting on the table. Uh, this wasn't part of the experiment, but when the current passed through the wire, Orsted noticed that the compass needle jumped. And he thought, what happened? What just happened there? Why, that was, they weren't touching, they were at a distance. And yet that compass needle responded. And of course, he went on to demonstrate that this is a reproducible phenomenon, that somehow an electric current was connected with magnetism. Now, it took another 30, 40 years for Michael Faraday, the great British experimentalist, to begin to work out the physical rules of uh, electromagnetic interactions. He built all those fundamental motors and so forth and began to show how the two, but there still wasn't a theory that really explained this. And that goes to James Clerk Maxwell in the 1860s and 70s. And what Maxwell does is he, he really is able to put together for the very first time, a theory that electricity and magnetism are interacting through a field phenomena. And a field here means that around that electrical wire, not just part of the wire, but in the space around the wire, there's an electrical and magnetic field that, that is associated with the passage of that current. When you pass current, it creates a, an ele a electromagnetic uh, uh, field, and that field extends in space. And in fact, that's what's moving the magnet. And so he worked out the laws of this, um, and in fact was able to verify with something that Faraday had guessed. He, he said, Faraday said, I think light is an electromagnetic phenomenon, that it's somehow, and in fact, he proves that. Now, what's so remarkable for me as a psychologist is that in about 1875, William James, who's, uh, you know, beginnings of psychology in, in America, is at Harvard. And we know, because a friend actually went to, did, did the research on what James was checking out in the library. He's checking out books on field theory, on Maxwell's field theory. And he then, by the time he delivers the uh, lectures on the variety of religious experiences in 1902 to 1904, he talks about that the mind has, uh, it's like a magnetic field. It's influenced by what's coming or what's on the margins. Uh, just like that magnet was being influenced by that electrical current. He sees the mind itself as being largely shaped and that the directions that we take in our thought, the kairos of where do we go here and then where do we go next, is influenced by these fields of force and what's coming in at the margins of our consciousness. We get into the 20th century and of course then we've got quantum and uh, relativity fields and, and this kind of thing that Einstein and why is Einstein relative to this conversation? Well, Einstein was a house guest of Jung's on a number of times when he was formulating these things. And the two of them actually talked about relativity. And Jung talked about psychic relativity and the mind as having a field-like quality to it. So these ideas are very deep in terms of the, the mystery of the link between the physical world and the, and the psychological or mental world. There's a long history of a, of a dance there. And I don't think we're finished with this by any means. And what I've written it only is trying to scratch the surface a little further. But, you know, we put 
people in fMRI machines. We use functional magnetic resonance to alter brain states and to examine the flow of the things in our brain and how that changes our consciousness in different kinds of ways. So there is a fundamental link between the nature of consciousness and these kinds of physical forces that manifest themselves in a field phenomenon. So I, that's what, when I'm talking about fields, there are lots and lots of ways to use the term field. I'm talking about it in terms of this uh, invisible but ubiquitous um, uh, sort of capacity for transmission. Um, and you know, the, the famous experiment at the end of the 19th century of the Michelson-Morley was people thought that light must be traveling uh, on a field of uh, ether. Sound waves travel through air or water, um, you know, it, it was thought all of our sensory phenomena like that would be processed on a medium. Well, it turns out there is no medium for electromagnetic waves. They, they propagate in space-time. They don't propagate uh, on a particular kind of medium. So it gets closer to something that's ubiquitous and something that's broader and larger, perhaps like the nature of consciousness itself. So is wow. consciousness a field? Wow. Joe, I, boy, I see how much you love these ideas, man. I mean, and it's it's more than just what you said. It's your let me say passion about it, and it's more than what you said to me. I could begin to see how you were imagining, because I like to do that, imagining how you're imagining this uh, phenomenon. Because I love I love fields too. I mean, fields of dreams. I play. Yeah, I like I like in the way. I'm trying to bring this back to the relationship between electronic distortion and emotion is that it's a little bit like uh, that compass next to the, uh, the, the, the electricity being uh, generated, that these, it's a signal for something. It's, there's something going on here is what you're trying to suggest. You are suggesting, I'm suggesting there's something that we don't believe because we don't have it in our general consciousness, general ideas about reality, that these emotional media connections are saying something important about this field that we're all immersed in. Yeah, yeah that we're constantly immersed in. We, in oh, constantly. we can't get out of it. We are, we are beings who are part of our existence is that way. I mean, and it's really taken me to the place where I don't think the mind is localizable inside of the brain or inside of just the body. I think the mind is something about our psychophysiology in, in engagement with our environment, both human yeah. and natural. Absolutely. Uh, eco people, eco psychology is trying to say that about ecology, but it's greater than that. And as you probably know, I use the term psychosphere to talk about our mental atmosphere. And it can go beyond Earth. But again, I'm kind of an earthbound creature. And yeah. I stay here and that our minds are immersed in the psychosphere, this mental atmosphere, which is another way of describing what you're talking about. And what I'm most interested in is developing a cartography of the psychosphere. How does how do these things work in it? A map of the thing. So here's your mind, my mind. We're talking with somebody. Uh, each of us is talking to somebody and emotion happens between us, between you and me, maybe between me and somebody that I'm like, when I meant ended toward the end of therapy, I was getting a little frustrated with the patient yesterday. It was about five, 
five o'clock and it was like um i think that's probably a high zoom time although i think this might be too because of this junction of what we're uh, between our, our but when oh by the way when you were doing this can you see what's happening here you were yeah. you were this is about electricity you, you you were making a field in the zoom thing <laughs> like that <laughs> so there's something about my mind that we'll say and this mind of the person at the coincidence cafe when she said oh i'm not going to do that that what the change the elect the electronics of the zoom in a way that made us have to realize that zoom and our emotions are part of the same thing we're related to each other somehow they're still different and what human beings have so much trouble with is recognizing both and that we are separate but we are also part of the same thing. It's a, we're a dualistic people, but we got to get meta to that and saying it's both of those two things. And you and I, you and I are trying to figure out as other people I'm hope are doing is how this field works. Now here's the, here's the fun problem I ask you about as we talk about these things, we're immersed in this field and can't get out of it. I believe that's yes. something you just said. Um, but we're getting out of it by talking about it. Yes, in, in a certain way, of course. I mean, we were able to reflect on it, although th that act of reflection, I think, is altering the field as well. I don't think it's, uh, you know, this is like quantum mechanics. Is it a particle or is it a wave? I mean, we're, we're in a, a similar kind of uh, situation. When you change your observational stance when you shift your conscious and unconscious balance to attend to something you're disrupting the field but you're you but that disruption is part of what's actually happening that it isn't separable in that sense for me i got it yeah and i would say is you know maybe the electric field is really a subset of a larger field and the, the mind is a part of that that, you know, the, that the mind is a part of that electric field is what we're suggesting that these distortions uh, imply to us. Yeah. It's not separate from our minds. And that is really a tough one for humanity right now. And, and I, I will add uh, another one that it's not just the distortions. And I want to see what you think about this one the, as an example. It's not just the distortions in the field that we create with our emotions uh, with, that distort the electronic field which then we can see but also there's content in media that reflects what's in our minds sometimes too and i've collected data on that from my own and uh the cambridge guys have data saying how much mind media connections happen and i want to give you a, an example from uh, a therapy patient of mine She's in her mid thirties uh, and I call her the princess from Princeton, New Jersey. She right. thinks she's, she thinks she's a princess. Uh, I mean, I bring that out of her, but it's in there. I mean, I just say, oh, look. So one day she's talking about um, uh, building a wall, this princess building a wall between her husband and her. And from behind the wall, she hurls insults at her husband and she's happy about it because that's what her mother did to her yeah. behind a wall so after the session which was kind of a big one for her she gets into her car and turns on the radio and there's a there's a song called castle walls 
And one of the lines in the wall in the in the song is take down your castle walls, yeah. which is what she wanted to be able to do. How, how do you think about that sort of content media mind thing? Yeah, it's, it, well, it, you know, it suggests that old um, medieval alchemical notion of the macrocosm and the microcosm being interconnected that um, I don't think it's causal one way or the other, but I think there's a kind of resonance. This would, I would say, fields have the capacity for resonance. It's a, a terribly important in my mind that we resonate with something and that we unconsciously find those resonances. They, they are, they're the way the world reflects back. I think what it does is it, it takes our Cartesian separation of objective and subjective realities and really begins to say it's a lot more porous than that. What and I've been fascinated with, um, for example. Um, eighth, ninth century Buddhist meditators in China coming up with a model of the universe that looks pretty much like the contemporary models that are coming out. And, you know, like what's going on there that, you know, that people can in these very deep states and why at this moment do we discover that, you know, that that's a resonant phenomena. There's something about all of the, the Zoom that we're all doing now that's creating a different kind of resonance where we're changing a certain kind of level of experience by all being um, online so much. And I think this kind of research that you're doing and the kind of identifying these things is really helping us begin to, I love that idea of the cartography of this, to begin to map the terrain. What are we doing? What actually is happening, not just in our moment-to-moment uh, -moment experiences, but are we in some way becoming more educated about our unconscious or what we used to call the unconscious? Maybe it, that term might be probably a bit out of date, but something about the qualities of mind that can resonate with the environment and that we find ourselves in a reflective world at times. I don't think that's um, just happenstance. I don't think it's something that... Uh, that is uh, a completely random thing. Deep emotional connection to something often finds resonance in some way. I think it's that affect again, the field of the affect that, that helps us locate that. She needed to hear that song, I would say. She did. She did. She needed to hear that song. And somehow she find it, found it. And I'm still somewhat causal in the way I like to think. Uh, it's, just, it's just because... You know, here's the pitch, you hit the ball, that kind of thing. I mean, that's what I'm used to. And, and, and it's still a grounding thing, but I like to get out into the space part of it. So we need to understand what this, this need thing is. What I've come up with, uh, perhaps you know, is, is that, and Jung said something like this too, um, you can, is, is that under certain circumstances, uh, coincidences are more likely to happen. And they include... Uh, life transition or life stress, high emotion and need, high emotion and need. And those three things in various degrees help makes something happen. Now that's, that, if that's not the only reasons, there's not the only structure that helps or situation that helps it happen, but that's, they're common. How does resonance fit with uh, those things, do you think? Yeah, I, well, I'll give you my thoughts. I mean, I, again, Please. I don't this. Uh, you know, what you're talking about in Jung's language was he said that for synchron when synchronicities occur, an archetype has been constellated. Yeah. 
that is something that um, has that kind of uh, energy and force has entered the field. It is it is beginning to take shape. It's starting to emerge, and the ability to resonate with that field is the way we actualize and experience it in, in moving it into consciousness. I think Jung was um, particularly interested in trying to catch things in their early emergence when they were first starting to come into being. So whether he's talking about something in a therapy process and he begins to get a, a an association, you know, what he would have called amplification. That is a cultural analogy to something somebody is saying, like you just did when the cave, you, you immediately got to Plato and his um, associations to the cave that we're all in about consciousness. So you brought a, a powerful um, amplification to the to the dream. And I believe that the purpose of that in Jung's thinking, and I, and I see it myself clinically, is that when we do that, it helps us recognize that archetypal pattern that might be constellating. You're beginning to get some shape on that. It's like, oh, that's what's starting to come into being between us. And when you can do that, then the resonance is there. Then you can begin to allow yourself to feel the strength of that. I I got a get yet more clear where you come from with emergence. I mean, you yeah. just you just described archetype emergence. And this is your experience. And one of the fun things about being involved with a lot of people interested in coincidence for me is to see the different perspectives each of us has on this phenomenon. It's like, it's more than just an elephant. I mean, it's got four dimensions in it from what I can tell and probably more. And yeah. I can draw those four out. So, so everybody's got their own thing. So. Uh, I don't know where the coincidence project is going. I mean, that's I, the fun of it is like the slime mold, but trying yeah. to get something. <laughs> the slime mold. Well, we, we can talk about that a little bit, but it has an emergent property that makes the cells of the slime mold be able to survive. So I don't know where this goes. And you're sometimes you're supposed to have an intention and that helps it happen. But this is one of those, I don't know. I mean, I got some idea about it and I can tell you what it is, but I don't want to particularly because I want to see what happens. But we are at a place now, Joe, that maybe uh, you can try to answer this as we talk about synchronicity and serendipity, coincidence and stuff. To, to what, to, where are we going with it? You and I really enjoy the subject i mean it's just fun and it's interesting and it's exploratory and it's adventuresome and it's mind bending and strengthening and all all those things that we, we i think we both love and what do, what are we doing with it where is it how is this supposed to help humanity i'm trying to be able to say how is it supposed to help us in this time of covid and worse climate change going on with us how, how do you see that yeah, that's um, it's something that I uh, ponder a fair bit. Um, it's led me to there are two areas that I found myself studying, and that is biological intelligence, like you mentioned with the slime mold and oracles. I, I'm interested in forms of knowledge that um, our predecessors had that we've lost, 
that in our turn in the 17th century towards a scientific rationalism, which has been an extraordinarily powerful tool. I, I, I'm not throwing stones at it. I, I was educated and trained as a scientist myself. But I've also become more and more sensitive to the aspects, how you bracket reality when you do that. And there's so much more that we're getting to a place now where the paradigm for understanding the world is too limited. And when we just use the the, ninth, the 17th through 20th century visions of, of rational science, there's all kinds of other phenomena like we're talking about that don't, there's no way to fit it in. And yet we need to recognize that this is not only fundamentally part of our human experience, but it may be a part of our survival to begin to reclaim some of these things. So when I talk about biological intelligence, this is the capacity of all organisms to adapt to their environments. And they have remarkable abilities. I mean, things that anything that survived the evolutionary process to today has some real abilities. And yet you can't get through 4 billion years of evolution uh, and, and not have some skills and abilities to manage your environment. <laughs> and so I want to I want to reclaim that, you know, I mean, those slime mold people, you know, the engineers were looking at that and saying, God, if we asked nature this question first, we'd have gotten some very interesting starting points for the kind of dilemmas we were trying to study. That, that was the original impetus. And more and more, I'm beginning to see that um, the way we have um, uh, put ourselves at the apex of a biological hierarchy has caused great damage to our planet and even to our own psyches. You know, in North America right now, there are three, three and a half billion less birds than there were in the 1970s. I mean, in just 40, 50 years, we've lost that much. And what else are we losing? And, you know, every time we lose species, we're in that sixth extinction. Every time we lose species and lose biodiversity, we don't even know the wealth of, of knowledge, information, and, and even at a, a more practical level, the biochemistry of what we're losing, you know, the potential drugs and the helpful things. And I think turning the other way, looking at something like COVID and what's going on, you know, there may be a lot of potential sources to it, but one of the more fundamental things that I've learned about it, it seems, is that it's probably been driven by climate change and that we're going to see more of it. And we'd better learn to adapt to what we're doing. The argument that this is from the Chan Center at, at Harvard, they've, they've been tracking this and saying, you know, what it looks like is happening is that as the planet is warming, species that were in more tropical areas are getting it's getting too hot for them they're moving to higher latitudes when they do that they get into close proximity with migrating species that they've never historically been in contact with and there are these kinds of viral things happen where you get trans species hopping this opportunistic change and that seems to be one of the kind of origins of a variety of new kinds of viral diseases and this is without even getting into the psychoid aspect of, of viruses. I think we have to look at the way our behavior is terraforming the planet in ways that we may or may not, may or may not want to have happen. There's a level of consciousness that we need about this panpsychism. This is, you know, the psychosphere, as you were talking about it, or the anima mundi uh, in old language. Because if we don't start paying attention to that, um, 
our ongoing survival on the planet is not in any way guaranteed. I mean, species that, that really violate the natural laws tend to end up going extinct fairly quickly. Yeah, and we're doing that. Um, we are violating just basic natural living. We, we got to be here on the planet by ourselves. The trouble, we, we're, gonna, we're, we're here. How do we change our own behavior? And I'm suggesting that we recognize that we have a collective human organism uh, with each person like a cell in this organism having been able being able to make a contribution to the survival of the organism, which very much means recognizing the, the sovereignty of other species. And for me, that sovereignty group is trees, uh, where I've had a connection with trees. And people have various different connections out there, but to try to get us all to recognize that there's a lot to learn from them and a lot of fun to be had. I'm, I'm big on having fun. And, and that's like what we should be trying to have here is because this could be a playground is kind of like where I'm thinking about it, but it's got to be playing with other creatures um, and not just uh, uh, augmenting ourselves. That's kind of the way I'm thinking about it, Joe. Yeah, yeah. I love the work of Suzanne Samard. Do you, do you know her? No. She, she's a forest botanist up in um, British, British Columbia. Columbia. Yeah. yeah. And uh, she's done some remarkable work about the mycorrhizal networks that form these very extensive organisms that interconnect all the trees and the intelligence and wisdom and the, and the, the communal functioning uh, that, that occurs, these, these fungi that connect, they give the trees um, uh, micronutrients like minerals and so forth, and the trees feed them sugars. And out of that exchange, a whole variety of communications happen that create very large swaths of forests that are interconnected. Um, and so that if, say, a, there's a beetle infestation at one part of the forest, that network will feed that, that information out to everyone else and the, the other trees in the community, and they'll change their biochemistry so that they're, they're not as vulnerable to the, that beetle infestation. And they have an adaptive intelligence. This is biological intelligence again. They have an adaptive intelligence that's really just spectacular. You know, um, the uh, Richard Powers book, The, the uh, Overstory, was, was based on her work. Um, and she's got a new book out now, Searching for the Mother Tree. It's sort of yeah. a biography. Yeah. Well, I've gotten into like uh, communicating with trees, uh, yeah. uh, which some people are, I'm finding, are, are able to do and are able to report now. So that's, uh, that, that's the level I'm on with recognizing just what you're talking about and experiencing with the trees that interconnectedness that they do with each other. I've, I've learned to be able to dance with some trees that I really like, and they like me to sing to them, uh, uh, partly because they can't make the same sounds, but they have other things that we can contribute. There's a lot to learn with trees, uh, and you're describing some of that, and that's that they're people, or they're conscious, or they're something that we are able to communicate with. And they're part of this field, and we're coming to the end in, of, yeah. of our time, Joe, and it's such a delight to talk with you uh, again, uh, and we'll do it again sometime. It, it's just a, a delight hearing you, and I love how much you love fields. Um, yeah. 
it's uh, it, it it's a it's I'm the, the cart mapping the cartography as I'm glad that caught your attention because these these things we started off with these distortions in the Zoom calls begin to like tell us something about our field interacting with the electromagnetic or the electronic field around us. And that's what we are trying to do. We're trying to investigate what is going on around here. That's what, that's my, what, what, they're not telling me something after. I went to some of America's finest schools. Yeah, they didn't tell me something. Uh, I was on hate street. They told me something a little better. That was that and Swarthmore were two of my best educations, 69 and in seventies and in San Francisco and Swarthmore College, those were the those where I learned a lot. There's still more out there that we're talking about trying to figure out. And this field idea that we came to talk about today, the distortions that emotion brings us, is a key way of trying to figure out how everything works. So we're going to end, but I'd like to hear one final comment from you, Joe. See what you have to say to wrap this up for us. Well, that's, you know, that what you were saying there about these fields and the disturbances of the field uh, are, are where, where there's an enormous amount of knowledge. And I think there's just all kinds of uses of what we would call altered states of consciousness or non-ordinary states of consciousness that have noetic quality. That is, they, they have forms of knowing that are outside our cognitive conscious forms of knowing. But that, and those knowings are perhaps a bit more diffuse than our normal cognitive thought, but they access things that otherwise we just don't have any way of getting to. And what you're talking about with trees, I think is a part of that. Thank you. Well, Joe. A pleasure. Yes, a pleasure. And now back to work for you. Yeah. <laughs> a different field for sure. Yeah. Close it down, Joe. Become the boss. Okay, yeah. that's what you're okay. going to do. <laughs> that's all part of it. That's all, that's all part of it. Thanks, yeah. Joe. Thanks, Bernie. I appreciate it. It's good to see you again. Bye. Like a hologram of cosmic consciousness.